Good morning, everyone. It was uh, it was interesting. We we it was a rare uh, a rare occurrence this year. We didn't have anyone joining us for the uh, early morning devotions at eight o'clock. You all uh, seem to have managed the time change well, and um, glad to see everyone made it through the rain. We are, as you can see, we're beginning a new series in uh, the Reformation, and uh, I'm not going to take anything for granted here. But l- let me just. Any of you would consider yourselves history buffs? I, I, so we've, we've got maybe three, three hands went up and a, and a, gro- and a grown oh no at the, in, the, um, uh, in the front section. So I'm assuming that, that uh, that's not, a, not many of you. Uh, that tends to be where we're at in uh, North America. If, if you've come from another place in the world, you, you may have already noticed or maybe you're starting to notice that people in North America don't really care very much about history. We tend to live in the present and forget the past. Uh, That's a part of who we are culturally. It's not a particularly healthy characteristic, um, but it's where we are. Uh, Just as an example of that, uh, this year, uh, so on on October 31st, we mark the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And because it is the 500th year, there have been... Uh, through a lot of different channels, uh, there have been, there's been information going out about what the Reformation is, what it's all about, um, why, why, it sh- why it's important to us. Despite that, the message, most, most Christians don't appear to have almost any idea about what it is, what it means, and whether it's important. Uh, the Pew Research Center did in uh, August a survey a uh, broad survey of people that considered themselves Protestant Christians and asked them just some basic uh, information about their understanding of the Reformation, and it was clear they knew almost nothing. Um, for instance, given a very simple, this was a multiple-choice question with only four answers, people were asked to identify the name of the historical period when Protestants broke away from the Catholic Church. They were given only four answers, multiple choice. 18% answered the Great Crusade. And some of you are thinking, I thought it was the Great Crusade. uh, I will hopefully uh, clear that up for you. 6% called it the Great Schism. 8% just weren't sure because that was one of the four answers. That was below the the four answers, sorry. And 5% decided that it must be called the French Revolution. So, uh, in our understanding of the Reformation, I'm not going to assume anything. I'm going to assume we're starting from scratch, that um, most likely, if you've heard of the word, maybe that's about all we're going to get. But in the the month of November, we're going to do something that we don't normally do. It's it's not our regular sermon series. We're going to be looking at the Reformation, and to do that, we are going to be looking at some important events in history. Uh, we are going to look at some of the beliefs of the Catholic Church, not to, not to criticize or condemn the Catholic Church, but to compare um, what the Catholic Church believes in comparison to what um, people discovered during the Reformation and believed uh, the Bible to teach. And we're going to bring it all home in comparing everything with Scripture and try to come to an under- understanding of uh, what did people discover, why does it matter, and is it actually in the Bible? 
the goal here is not a series of history lessons. If that's all you get from us today or for this month, I will have failed you. It's not a history lesson. Um, But my goal is that you and I and everyone in this room would discover the truths that in 500 years ago transformed a continent, um, but also to discover those truths for ourselves. Because I suspect if uh, about 25% uh, or 30% of people couldn't even come up with the name for this event 500 years ago, my guess is that many of us really haven't come to terms with some of the amazing truths that, that really brought transformation to people's lives as they discovered them from the scriptures. So that's my goal. Now, the Reformation, and we're going to be walking through it, it can be described and summarized with five statements, five points. And they're known as the five solas uh, because uh, they were Latin slogans, and this word sola just, uh, it, this word sola appeared in each of those five slogans, okay? So if anybody asks you, hey, I'm always wondering, what's the difference between uh, Catholicism and pro- pro- Protestantism? What, what's the difference? I want you to be able to remember there are five things, and they all have the word sola or only. The word sola just means only. And, and, and so we're going to be talking about this word only, 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 over and over again throughout this month because it is that word that really is at the, uh, the difference between uh, Roman Catholic t- teaching and Protestant teaching. So uh, today we're going to look at the first slogan, which is called sola scriptura or scripture alone. Scripture alone, this principle of sola scriptura is the belief that the Bible is the only perfect source of faith and practice. The Bible is the only perfect source of faith and practice. So the scriptures are the only authoritative standard to uh, evaluate our lives. And it's that word only that I want you to remember and to see as we, uh, as, as we walk it through. Just, just so there's no, no misunderstanding, it's like if I were to say, there are many different ways that we could measure, for instance, the length of this room, okay? Many, if, if I asked you, what's the length of this room? There could be, many of you would look to different ways. Maybe some of you would take your hand and you'd, you'd count the number of hand widths and you'd say, okay, it's about, you know, 65 hand widths and that's about, you know, and you'd give me an, an answer for what you thought the length of this room was. Other people might pace it out and you would try to, to measure the length of this room by pacing it out. Someone else, you may go to a a carpenter in the room and you'd say, hey, um, Joe, you're a carpenter. Can you give me, what do do you think the length of this room is? And, and, And that person would come up with another determination of the length of this room. And those would be all ways that you could measure the length of the room. But we would say that the only perfect way or accurate or authoritative way that you can answer, you could get the length of this room is with a tape measure with actually taking it out and measuring it. And that would be, all of those be ways that you could measure the room, but there is only one authoritative way that would give you what we would believe to be a perfect and accurate uh, length of this room. When we're talking about sola scripture or or scripture alone, we're saying the Bible's a little bit like that tape measure. It's the only final authority. It's the only accurate and, and, and perfect sense of 
to, uh, to, to guide our lives. Just so there's no misunderstanding, that was sola scripture. That's scripture alone. I need to distinguish that um, with solo scriptura. And we're not teaching solo scriptura. Uh, solo, solo scripture is a term that R.C. Sproul has termed. And it's where a person thinks that all they need is the Bible and nothing else. Solo scriptura, for instance, ignores the teaching of the church. They ignore the insights of other believers. They don't listen to anything that uh, church history could possibly teach us. They don't, they're unteachable because they've got their Bible and that's all they need, not listening to anyone else, okay? That is solo scriptura and that is not what we're talking about here. Sola Sola scriptura can learn from many different areas, can learn from many different people, listens to sermons, listens to teaching, but says all of it has to be evaluated by what the word of God says. Ultimately, the Bible is our only uh, infallible, is our only perfect source of of, uh, truth and doctrine. Now, one of the reasons Christians believe this is that the Bible, unlike all of those other things, is utterly unique. The Bible is perfect. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says this. All scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. This passage teaches us that the Bible is not like any other book. It is not just a a good book. It is not just a wise book. The Bible is not just a holy book. It says that it's a sacred book that has actually been breathed out by God. And what that means is that it's literally God's words communicated through human authors. When we open the scriptures, we're opening a, a book containing literally the words and thoughts of God. It says that it's profitable, not just for understanding who God is, but also for training in righteousness. It shows us how to live. In fact, it says the Bible can make us complete. It can equip us to do what God would have us to do. At this point, some people get it wrong. Some Protestants are under the impression that Catholics don't believe this, but they do. Catholics have an incredibly high view of Scripture. Where the Catholic Church, though, differs from Protestants is in the word only. It's the sola. The the only, as we'll see all through this month, is what distinguishes the two. This word only is the sense that for the Catholic Church, they put the scriptures, the word of God, on a very high shelf. But as they put the... but, But Protestants have insisted that the Bible doesn't just get put on a very high shelf, it's put on a shelf all its own. It's the only thing that you put on the highest shelf. It's one thing that that can evaluate and, and test everything else. And so the question that we're asking this morning is, what shelf have you put the Bible on in your life, and have you put anything else on that shelf? And when we're talking about the shelf, we're saying the highest authority, the the most perfect source of 
influence and guidance in your life. Have you put the scriptures on the top shelf or on some other shelf? And is there anything else on that shelf that guides and directs your life in a similar way or in a competing way with the Bible? To help you to see that, I'm going to ask you three questions to help you to see which, which shelf have I put the Bible on in my life? Three questions to help you to discern whether you've truly discovered Scripture alone, sola scriptura. The first question is, does the Bible trump tradition in your life? Does the Bible trump tradition in life? So compared to the Bible, are traditions for you nice or are they necessary? We're not saying, as solo scripture would say, all tradition is wrong. We don't have any traditions. That's not what we're saying. We're just saying, what shelf are those traditions? Are they nice or are they necessary? Are they binding? Are they authoritative in our life? So to help you understand that question, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about two sausages that changed a nation. Okay? Two sausages that changed a nation. The year is 1522, and everyone in the town of Zurich, as they did in most of the towns of Europe at the time, were observing the season of Lent. Uh, For those of you who needed primer, Lent is a a period of uh, 40 days in the lead-up to Easter where people practice self-denial in preparation for Easter. Traditionally, only vegetables and fish were to be eaten. In Zurich, as in many other towns at the time, people were actually fined. You would, you would, if you ate anything other than fish or vegetables, you would, during Lent, you would get a fine. On one night, 12 men scandalously gathered for an infamous sausage supper. Okay? They actually, it, it's, it, I've got a picture here that looks like a great barbecue just to, to give you the image, but... They actually apparently only had two smoked sausages that they cut up in in small little pieces and distributed them among among the group. Um, But they they cut up those small pieces and ate them. And, importantly, they made sure that everyone else in the town knew that they had done this scandalous thing. There was only one man in the group, one of the 12, who didn't eat the sausage, Okay. He didn't eat the sausage because his job was to explain to everyone else in the town why they weren't eating the sausage. His job was to explain why they were doing what they were doing. And I guess if he were to have eaten the sausage, maybe he'd get arrested and not have the opportunity to to tell that to everyone else. So his, his name was Huldrych Zwingli, and he was a priest in the town at the time. Two weeks later, he, develops, he delivers a provocative sermon entitled On Food Choice and Freedom. I, I'm, I'm thinking I, I should do a, a sermon like this someday. On Food Choice and Freedom. Anyway, his basic point is the Bible doesn't contain any dietary rules for Christians. And it doesn't even mention or, uh, or promote any, any season called Lent. And so... If, 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 if that's the case, if the Bible doesn't mention it or speak to it, then it can't be a sin for a Christian. It, it can't be wrong not to participate in this. He, he, his point was not, everybody should do away with Lent, or everybody should eat sausages like we do. He, that's not what he was saying. What he was saying was, 
it's not a sin either way. If you want to fast, great. If you want to just eat vegetables, wonderful. If you want to just try and hang on with, with water, and, and that, you know, that's totally fine just to make it binding on everyone who claims to be a follower of Christ can't be right. If they want to eat sausages, they can eat sausages. If it's vegetables, that's okay too. All of that sounds like an argument about sausages by someone who just wanted a meal. And probably by not eating the sausages, his point was to communicate, hey, it's not like I did this because I wanted to eat sausages. I didn't even eat the sausage. But I want you to know that this freedom as he in, included in his sermon titled, this freedom is essential for the life of a Christian. We have to be guided by the scriptures alone. And it was, it was that, that was really the, the argument. At that time, the, the town needed to come to terms with, would they be believers that were guided by scripture alone or scripture plus tradition? A year later, Zurich answered that question. Town council came together. The uh, people of the town uh, de- debated, and S- Zurich became Switzerland's first Reformation town, and from Zurich, uh, that spread out into the entire nation, and many, many other Swiss towns followed. This idea of Scripture alone rather than Scripture plus tradition is today one of the basic and most fundamental differences between the teaching of the Catholic Church and the teaching of the Protestant Church. In the most recent catechism, for instance, of the Catholic Church, this is a document that the Catholic Church uses to teach their their followers um, uh, about, uh, about their basic teachings, what they believe, Article number 82 says this, and you can, you can look, at, look this up at, at home if you like. It's online. It says, The church does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the scriptures alone. Both scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. Everybody see the words? They are not down on scripture. They are not tossing out the Bible. What they are doing, though, is saying there's something that you put on the top shelf alongside it. It's this thing called capital T T tradition. That capital T tradition must be accepted and honored with equal devotion and reverence. Now, many religious Jews in the first century had almost exactly the same belief almost exactly the same idea. They were deeply committed to the scriptures, but they also had all kinds of traditions that they put on almost the exact same level as the scriptures themselves. And in a similar spirit to Zwingli's sausage banquet, Jesus deliberately confronted their traditions. He, he uh, uh, dealt head on and, and, and really faced off with the, with the leaders about this very issue. Look what happens in Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 to 3. It says, Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. 
And they weren't just washing it for, to, to be clean. It was for, a, there was a ceremonial purifying effect that they believed that the water would have before, before eating. Jesus answered them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Now, nothing wrong with washing your hands before a meal, right? If your mother tells you to do it, I highly recommend it. This is a good thing, okay? That's not the issue. But the, religious, the re- Jewish religious authorities had made it a binding practice on people. This is something you must do, even though there was no basis for it in the Bible. Jesus, as you see in him interacting here, he not only refuses to respond to their complaint, he deliberately provokes them, re- refuses to respond, and he said, what you're doing in putting tradition on a par with Scripture, that often what you're, what, what's happening is you are ignoring and going against what God's word itself says. You've broken the commandments of God in order to keep your traditions. And so the question before us is, for you, what shelf have you put the Bible on and have you put anything on that shelf alongside it? Because Jesus would have us to put the scriptures alone on that that shelf. Now, the next question I'd have you consider is whether the Bible trumps human authority in your life. For instance, have you put your faith in whatever the pastor says about the Bible or have you put your faith in the Bible itself? Understand the distinction? Is it the Bible plus human authority or is it the Bible alone? Now, Martin Luther is a German monk who is known for igniting the Protestant Reformation. When we, when we get of a date to October 31st, 1517, we're, we're referring to an event where Martin Luther uh, uh, posted 95 theses on the door, uh, church door at Wittenberg at, at, on, on a particular day in order to protest what he saw were some of the, uh, the, the, the issues that needed confronting in, in the church. But probably his most famous quote comes from a church meeting with what most must be the most ironic-sounding uh, gathering of, of people ever. It's, it was referred to as a diet of worms. And this wasn't saying that, you know, that they ate worms or they, they had a strict diet of worms. He just talked about the sausages and maybe this is a worm thing. It has nothing to do with that. Um, but it was the name given to uh, a particular meeting of church, church leaders where they came together to, to debate some of these new um, ideas that were be, being put forward now four years into the Reformation. So Luther's teachings have begun to spread widely and he's been called to give a defense, either to recant or say, I don't actually believe that, or to reaffirm and say, no, all these things I've been teaching, I actually do believe them. He's he's been called to defend and to affirm or to deny everything he's been teaching and he's going to be doing that before uh, the emperor, Charles V. For context's sake, another man named Jan Hus, about 100 years earlier, had been called on a similar task to, to defend himself, and they concluded that meeting with him being burned at the stake as a heretic. So when Martin Luther walks into this meeting, he knows his life is at stake. Uh, depending on how, how this meeting turns out, the Diet of Worms, he could be killed for his beliefs. So tension's high. And he's asked to recant or to deny what he believes. And, 
And knowing that his life is at stake, he responds this way. Unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. Now, he lived at a time when uh, the Pope and other church leaders had this unquestioned authority over the people. Again, it wasn't as if they didn't believe in the authority of the Bible. They just put the authority of church leaders right alongside it. They put themselves on the same shelf as the Bible's authority. And so, as a result, church teaching often added to, subtracted from, or contradicted what the scriptures taught. Now, Catholicism today remains a religion that is largely regulated by human authority. For example, again, this is uh, straight from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Article 100 says, the task of interpreting the word of God authentically has been entrusted solely to the magisterium of the church, that is, to the pope and to the bishops in communion with him. So again, the Bible is given great authority. It's held up, put on the top shelf. But the only ones who can definitively tell you what it really means are the Pope and his trusted bishops. And so the, 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 the Bible gets on the top shelf, but the only way that you really know what the Bible says is by listening to the human authorities that, that have been placed over you. The problem with that is that it puts human authority, again, on the, on the top shelf with the Bible. And interpreting scripture and questioning church leadership are both out of reach of the ordinary believer. I want you to compare that mindset with the Bereans in Acts chapter 17. The apostle Paul arrives in Berea with Silas and he begins to preach. But here, when the event takes place, it's not Paul's eloquence or what a great sermon he preached. None of that is held up as as noteworthy about this particular event. It's the way that the Berean people themselves respond to the scriptures that gets all the attention. Watch what it says in verse 11. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They're called noble. They're actually more noble than the Thessalonians. And the Thessalonians were pretty decent people. A number of them believed the word of God and trusted in Jesus Christ. But the reason the Bereans were singled out as more noble was that they didn't even put the Apostle Paul on the top shelf. Scripture alone gets that position. They liked, they liked Paul's message. They thought it was a good sermon. It says they received the word with all eagerness, but that wasn't enough for them. It says, after they had received the word with all eagerness, they went home and they examined the scriptures daily to see whether those things were actually true. Now Luke's giving us an historical account of what's happened. And he could have said, who are these Bereans? Who do they think they are anyway? Didn't they realize this was the Apostle Paul? Like, what are they doing questioning? What, what, or even considering what he might have had to say. Didn't anybody tell them that Paul and Peter are, are our only ones who are entrusted with interpreting the Bible? 
what are, what are ordinary people doing trying to figure this, these things out for themselves? He doesn't say that. Instead, he says, they got it right. The way they treat human leaders and the way they treat the Bible is exactly the way God intended. Put the Bible on the top shelf and give appropriate levels of respect to, uh, to human authorities. Respect your leaders, but only the Bible goes on the top shelf. So examine what people say. Test what people say. Test what I say. You go home tonight and you take a look at the scriptures for yourselves. You, you, may, you come to an understanding of what God teaches yourself because God can speak to you through his word. Again, the question, what shelf have you put the Bible on? Does the Bible trump human authority in your life? Now, we've talked about two questions from the Reformation that help us to see which shelf we've put the Bible on. But there's, there's one last question I'd have to ask, and it's more of a modern test of Scripture. This question is, does the Bible trump preference and experience in your life? Are you the kind of person to put your feelings on the top shelf alongside Scripture? Does the Bible trump preference and experience in your life? Michael Reeves described the modern challenge this way. He says, Now preference and experience are everything. Ethical issues are decided on the basis of the personal stories that elicit most sympathy. Individual dilemmas are determined on the basis of a person's feelings. Any sense that right and wrong may be rooted in the way things are or in divine revelation has been replaced by subjectivity. So, The idea here basically is feelings are in charge. Feelings are the the main thing that guide our lives. Preferences hold sway. I like it this way. I've always done it this way. I just have this feeling that this is the way it should be done. As Disney keeps telling us, we're supposed to just follow our hearts. Compare that mindset with how Jesus saw the world. When he was hungry, Satan tempted him to make bread, but he answered, it is written. And then he quoted scripture. When Satan tempted him to test God and presume upon his mercy, again, Jesus answered him, it is written, and he quoted scripture. Case closed. There's nothing more to discuss. There's no question about how do I feel about the matter? Or do I kind of feel, uh, he felt hungry. That was the whole point. He felt hungry. He felt like making bread, but it is written, settled it for him. It didn't matter whether he was hungry, whether he felt like eating bread. Uh, He had those feelings, but the scriptures were his sole authority. When Satan offered him riches and power in exchange for compromise, Jesus again sent him packing and and again answered, it is written. I wonder if the Bible settles matters for you like that. I wonder if you're convinced that the Bible says something, whether that's kind of the end of the, that's the end, end of the decision-making process for you, or whether that's really just one of the, one of the books on the shelf for, for you that really, that, that's, that's interesting what the Bible says, but I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to consult with my feelings and my experience and my preferences, and if they don't really line up with the Bible, then that's not really something I'm going to listen to. Are you the kind of person that says, I know what the Bible says, but 
I've never done that before. I don't don't think I'm going to do that. Or I know that's what the Bible teaches, but I just don't feel like doing that. My heart just doesn't seem to be guiding me that way. Or I know that's what God's word says, but I kind of see it like this. Anytime you, say, you hear yourself saying that, and you probably won't actually say it, it'll just come in your mind. It'll be a little conversation that you're having. And every time that you're doing that, you, are, you need to remind yourself, I'm not sure whether I've really experienced the Reformation. There's not really anything to celebrate for me because I've put other things on that top shelf next to the Bible. Or maybe the bigger problem for many of us is that the world tempts us with, with its values. Satan comes to us the way Satan came to, say, to, to Jesus in the desert. And he tells us something and we're like, I have no idea what the Bible says because it's been an awful long time since I've read it. I'm just not sure. And so there's no real battle going on. We just I don't have any other option. I, I didn't know the Bible said not to do that. And, and we, just, we just take it. We, we suck it all in. And we become influenced by the world. And there's no battle with Satan because we just don't have any other alternative from the scriptures. We say we put the Bible on a high shelf, but if we never open it up, how high on the shelf is it? It's covered with dust. Like, what role do we really see it having in our lives? If any of this describes where you're at this morning, the invitation is not to another history lesson. But it's to ask yourself the question, what shelf have I put the Bible on? And is there anything else alongside it? By faith, we put the Bible on the top shelf. We let it as written settle matters in our mind. And we give ourselves to God alone. When tradition speaks or people have their say or your heart and emotions call, you put them on hold while you check with what the Bible says. And you remind yourself that the scriptures are the only perfect source of guidance. And you allow God to guide you by his word and to get to glorify himself by it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for preserving your perfect word for us. Thank you for revealing to us who you are and what you're like. Thank you, Father, for taking the time to speak into the issues of our lives. Help us to treat your word as holy. Help us to treat the scriptures as sacred. Traditions can be powerful and meaningful and helpful to us, but help us not to be ruled by them. Leaders and teachers and people are essential to us, but Help us to examine what they say in light of your word. It's good to be conscious of what our heart is saying, but let us be guided by it is written the way Jesus was. We want your word to have the place in our lives that it deserves. So go go before us and give us your help. For we call on you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.